From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The son of Ukrainian immigrants is headed from Colorado to Poland to help Ukrainian refugees. I want to be present to those people, like my parents who were displaced during World War II, that are crossing from Western Ukraine into Poland, just to let them know with my bilingual skills that they are not alone. Then, the man who snapped the picture of Mount Sneffels on the new driver license. This was one of my first trips down there when I took this photo. And a season preview of Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery. For a long period of my life, when I was binge eating, you know, in my youth, I really did not believe that what was happening to me or my behavior was anything out of the ordinary. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Frankstown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. They say lightning doesn't strike twice, but wildfire sure does. Ben Holden moved to Colorado for graduate school, specifically to Superior. That was just before the Marshall Fire tore through town. This past weekend, he went on a long-planned hike with some fellow students. Actually, it's kind of ironic because this is the first hike that we were doing as a group for the CU Boulder chapter of the Conservation Coalition, which is, you know, an environmental group on campus that just started a chapter. And we were discussing like where we wanted to hike and stuff. And so we landed on the NCAR trail area. Holton says he brought his very cute one-year-old Australian shepherd with him. He describes the day as a perfect one for a hike. The trails were bustling. The climb up was manageable. On the descent, his group spotted trouble. Behind a ridge, we see some smoke coming up. And we discussed this for a moment. We're kind of like, well, looks kind of strange. Is this kind of like something controlled? Is this supposed to happen? But immediately my mind, you know, went to this has to be a wildfire because this type of smoke, I can't, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I had actually seen this type of smoke developing just, you know, a couple of months early, three months earlier uh, or four months now during the Marshall Fire, because I had moved to Superior two days before that fire started. And I remember driving down Superior and I saw smoke billowing. And I remember thinking the same thing, like, is this some sort of dust bowl? Is this supposed to happen? You know, I'm obviously new to Colorado, so how would I know, Hmm. right? But, you know, fool me once, right? So we discussed this briefly and we were like, okay, we need to get back to the parking lot and probably off this mountain because this doesn't look too good. It might be a wildfire. And sure enough, as we continue to descend down the trail, it's billowing more and more, and it's obviously building very quickly, and it's very close to the actual trail. So you decided to take a video, and uh, you actually posted it to Twitter, which is how I found you. And the video starts on a full screen of billowing smoke, you can see a few of those intense flames. 
and then you pan, and a line of hikers is coming down. They're sort of half fixated on the fire, half concerned with getting off the trail. What I notice, Ben, is the constant wind you hear. This is really close to where the NCAR trail goes towards the trailhead. It goes sort of around a bend and towards the parking lot. So this is close to the road at the very beginning of that trail. So we had gotten basically all the way down at that point. And the smoke and wind was blowing away from us. So that's why I felt comfortable stopping and taking that video. Although wind directions are obviously very volatile, so it's definitely sketchy. But I, I felt comfortable just stopping right there just to take a moment to document it. And, and really, that's when I saw a bunch of people just rushing down the mountain and, and towards that bend to get to the parking lot. Was it hard once you returned to the parking lot? Was it hard to evacuate? Uh, no, because this was so early on during the fire that we didn't see the fire department there yet. There were some first responders, some park rangers and police officers who were actually coming up the road towards uh, NCAR at that time. You mentioned that you're new to Colorado. You live in Superior, uh, also in Boulder County, and devastated as well by the Marshall Fire. Was your home okay, Ben, in the Marshall Fire? Yes, yes. Okay. Thank goodness. Um, we were very lucky. Our part of Rock Creek was untouched. But, you know, just a couple of minutes down the road, you know, there are, there are houses that burn to the ground. So this is definitely something that, you know, hit home. I just moved in and had to evacuate basically immediately after just putting all my stuff inside. So it was definitely a very dramatic start to my time in Colorado. And now, finally, after midterms and everything else, I was able to get out again and go on a hike. And then <laughs> I just so happened to stumble upon a wildfire. So. Uh, there seems to be a theme sort of running here. <laughs> Do you have any regrets about moving to Colorado? No, no, I don't. I suppose it kind of comes with the territory, as it were. And this is something that is becoming a, an increasingly pernicious problem in the American West. That said, though, I mean, it is eerie and slightly concerning, given that these fires are very, very dangerous and potentially life-threatening. It's definitely a little bit concerning um, having experienced them at, you know, such a close range uh, twice now in just, you know, four months of living here. Yeah. But beyond that, I, I, I love Colorado. So it's definitely a mixed experience in that sense, but I definitely don't regret moving here. Uh, I know that you're getting a master's in data science at CU. Is there any way in which this experience will influence your studies or your work, your direction? I don't know. Um, it might. It might radicalize me in some uh, form or another that I can't really pinpoint at this time. But um, this is definitely something that can be studied and probably something that can be modeled as well. And this is something that I'm definitely interested in learning more about, if only to sort of know which days I should go on a hike. And <laughs> a very local reason, I suppose. Uh, hey, thanks, Ben, for talking with us. Glad you're safe. All right, thank you. Ben Holden of Superior, Colorado, who witnessed the beginnings of the NCAR fire over the weekend. As of this morning, it's 35% contained with no loss of life or structures. 
John Babiak of Denver feels a compunction to help people who struggle, a quality his parents instilled in him. In the 1940s, they were displaced from Ukraine, which is why, despite a congenital heart condition, Babiak soon leaves for Poland to help Ukrainians fleeing the Russian invasion. The 62-year-old might, might cross over into his family's homeland. And John, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity, Ryan. Are you packed? And uh, if so, what's a must-have and what's something you are going to leave at home? Well, I'm departing on April the 7th, so I've started to assemble the items that I need. Uh, It will be a month-long trip, and must-haves include my camera, uh, certainly clothing that will get me through the uh, precipitation that comes in the springtime in Poland, And I'm hoping also to bring comfort toys and coloring books for children who are displaced as a result of this horrific crisis that we are witnessing on Earth. I'll ask more about the work you plan to do there uh, in a moment. But your parents, Michael and Stephanie, lived in Ukraine, so there's clearly this personal connection. Indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, your cardiac concerns are not insignificant. Uh, I believe you have a series of exams scheduled for later this week. Might the doctor dissuade you from doing this? No, I am determined. I have defied the odds uh, that were given to me when I learned that I suffer from a severe left ventricular heart failure, tachycardia, hypotension, and with a positive attitude, with the meds that have been prescribed to me by my stellar team of doctors down at Denver Health Hospital, and exercise, a good diet, I feel very prepared to do my mission, complete it, but also do it at my own pace. So mm. I do need to rest. It's part of the deal, and uh, I will accomplish my objectives. And what work do you hope to do when you arrive in Poland? I have several uh, objectives. First and foremost, I want to be present to those people like my parents who were displaced during World War II that are crossing from Western Ukraine into Poland. Just to let them know with my bilingual skills, I'm fluent in Ukrainian as well as English, and uh, communicate to them that they are not alone. My second goal is to be mindful of the children that are in this horrible predicament. I volunteer in the Denver Health Intensive Care Unit for Children, as well as their PEDS ward. And I can see when I distribute or my colleagues, fellow volunteers or nurses, doctors, physicians, assistants, when they distribute a book or someone reads to a child or to distribute a plush toy how much joy that brings to a child that is in unfamiliar surroundings. And certainly, Ryan, a child that is on the run with their parents or guardians is in very unfamiliar surroundings. So my intention through a campaign that I have launched is to bring with me or purchase in Poland or in Ukraine, should I cross over, small toys that I can disseminate to these children. My other objective is to team up with the World Central Kitchen um, nonprofit that is based in Washington, D.C., 
It is run by a famous New York chef, uh, a Spaniard as well, Jose Andreas, mm -hmm. and his commander, uh, CEO, Nate Mook. And I intend to just step up and stir comfort soups, disseminate food to those that are crossing the border as a part-time volunteer when I'm not engaging with children and adults that are fleeing their homeland. You have a GoFundMe associated with the purchasing of items of comfort for children. Do uh, Jose Andres and his folks know you're coming? Um, I, and let me ask a larger question there too, John. How do you know you won't be in the way at this point? It's such a kinetic environment there. I also imagine that housing is a, at a premium. Correct. So I have communicated with Nate Mook. Uh, he is aware that I intend to go, but their system, whether it is operating within the United States, the Caribbean, uh, you sign up as a volunteer. They post times when they need individuals and it is that black and white. So I don't hmm. see myself getting in their way because I will be welcomed and I will be plugged into a shift that will allow me to meet their objectives and my own objectives. And where will you stay, John? That is to be determined. Um, I will be bringing my pup tent. So if I need to uh, stay in a uh, a park, I will do that. Otherwise, my friends know me as someone who enjoys hosteling uh, with other adults. The cities that I intend to be working out of at the borders of Poland and possibly uh, the city where my parents resided in Lviv, Ukraine, there are many hostels. Worst case, I will sleep wherever I am assigned to work. Okay, well, it sounds like you might cross over into Ukraine, where your parents are from. What will determine that decision? You know, it's fraught, John, no doubt. Correct. Uh, and I'm very conscious of the threat that exists in western Ukraine. The Russians have uh, taken aim at parts of Lviv, and that may escalate day by day mm -hmm. by the time I get there. So my safety is paramount. So if it is against uh, my good uh, nature and judgment, I will not go. Uh, many people will be coming in my direction, right, from east to west, and I can certainly achieve my objectives by waiting for them. If it is safe, then I will go. It's only, um, you know, a one-hour train ride across the border to Lviv. There are many needs that have been announced within that community, both by their mayor as well as healthcare providers. I can use my goodwill, my intelligence, my stamina, and my language to help them out. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're speaking with John Babiak. He's a first-generation Ukrainian-American who's planning on traveling from Colorado to Poland uh, early next month to volunteer and assist those in need with the war taking place in Ukraine. Uh, back to your parents for a moment, Michael and Stephanie, native Ukrainians displaced from their home in the 1940s. They eventually settled in upstate New York. And you talk about watching them help others when you were a young boy. What did you witness, John? Uh, my parents were very compassionate and generous human beings, and they had a great impact on my 
philosophies on my social style. I would see them welcome fellow Ukrainians, recent immigrants or ones that had been in our community even from World War One, and help them just interpret paperwork from the U.S. government to help them get Social Security disability payments. My father worked as a medical technologist in our community uh, hospital. I would see him draw blood in our kitchen in hopes that he could facilitate the diagnosis of a neighbor's illness. They looked to him as a doctor. He was in medical school in Lviv, but it was cut short because of World War II. But because of his connection to our hospital community, uh, he was a go-to individual. And with my mother, you know, offered food, they offered clothing, they helped individuals enroll in schools so they could learn the English language. They helped their kids with their homework. Uh, they were very active in our Ukrainian Catholic church. And I credit them for making me a, a person that cares and is compassionate and, and can do, have a can-do attitude. Will you be carrying your parents in your heart during this trip? And I wonder if you'll think about their footsteps, uh, frankly, which so many Ukrainians are sort of retracing now. Absolutely. And I will also be bringing a makeshift family photo album that my parents shared with me when I was a young man. And I will use that photo album and a map that my mother and father helped me create to draw out their journey across Europe until they were able to enter into a displaced persons camp in Bayreuth, Germany, hmm. where they lived, and it was managed by the Red Cross, and until they were able to immigrate to New York City. You have tried to instill this sense of service and is it kids plural? I know you're a dad. Kids plural? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm a proud parent of three children. John, if you were my dad, I'd be so worried about you. What, what are you telling your kids? How are you comforting them? Um, they're all behind me, and they have taken their own challenges and projects to Guatemala, as an example, where it may not be in the midst of a war like we're seeing in Russia, but we have drug lords that are there, and they were in their projects, you know, threatened by that, and that is part of life. You know, there are police officers, there are firefighters, there are emergency room doctors that are threatened every day. So in my case, I believe that I will be safe. I have God on my side, and we all pray that this will be a short trip, a fruitful trip, and this conflict will end, and I will come home safely. Well, we hope to connect with you, if you can spare the time, at some point after you arrive in Poland, uh, to let us know how it's going over there. Thanks so much for your time. And thank you for your time. John Babiak is a former teacher and current photojournalist who plans to travel to Poland next week to help his fellow Ukrainians. And we'll be right back with a verdict that Denver protesters see as vindication. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hey everybody, this is Jad Abumrad from Radiolab. Sunday, April 17th, I'll be at Paramount Theater talking about the miracle of indoor plumbing. I promise you that will make sense if you come. Tickets on sale now at ParamountDenver.com. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver will pay a group of demonstrators millions for how police treated them during the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. A federal jury awarded the plaintiffs a combined $14 million after a long trial, which ended Friday. CPR's Matt Bloom followed the proceedings from beginning to end. Hi, Matt. Hey, Ryan. Let's break down the verdict. $14 million in awards. What exactly is that for? Why, perhaps, is it significant? This is the largest penalty the city has faced for its police department's excessive use of force against protesters in 2020. The jury found that missteps by top officials at the Denver Police Department led officers to deploy tear gas, pepper balls, and other weapons against peaceful demonstrators. And most importantly, those actions violated the plaintiff's constitutional rights to peacefully assemble. Something else to note here is that we've seen the city settle with in several injured protesters in the years since the protests, but the plaintiffs in this case wanted this to go to trial. They wanted to hold the department accountable for its response to the George Floyd protests in a public courtroom which is something that we just haven't seen in the almost two years since the demonstrations. So they were unwilling to settle. That's why it went to trial. And who are the plaintiffs? And I'm curious how they reacted to the verdict. The 12 plaintiffs are all Denver residents who participated in the George Floyd protests in late May and early June 2020. They were all injured by police, either by pepper balls, tear gas, or pepper spray, while they were out peacefully protesting on the streets. They all say, and the jury agreed, that they were separate from the more violent demonstrators who, if you remember, caused a lot of damage around the state capitol and downtown Denver that summer. I was in the courtroom, and the group sat at the front. They held hands as the judge read the verdict in their favor, They sobbed and hugged each other. Once everyone got outside, they talked about what had just happened and and what it meant to them. One of the plaintiffs in the case who I talked to, Elizabeth Epps, uh, was shot with pepper balls as she was crossing the street during the demonstrations. The jury awarded her just over $1 million. Uh, She said the verdict is vindicating. It matters because it's such a statement and it's a message to our city of what our safety is worth, right? What our rights as protesters, as community members are worth. So in that way, the number actually does matter, right? It's not a small amount. A lot of the plaintiffs say the force used by police left them not just physically injured, but more fearful of law enforcement in the long run and emotionally traumatized. Say more about what the jury found was wrong in the department's response. The key here is that jurors said it wasn't just individual officers who violated the rights of protesters, but that practices and policies at the department's highest level led to an overuse of force. The plaintiff's attorneys pointed to shoddy record keeping, um, insufficient crowd control training, failure to issue dispersal orders before firing tear gas and pepper balls, among other things. Several DPD officers were even quoted in city memos that the department suffered a, quote, total leadership failure during the demonstrations. So 
That's why we're seeing this $14 million in damages against the city and not just individual officers. I gather the city disagrees with this verdict. What have they said about it? Yeah. Throughout the trial, city attorneys said the police department was doing its best to protect public safety amid the demonstrations, which were unprecedented in size and violence. One lawyer even compared it to preparing for cold and flu season and then COVID hits. And of course, this was in the midst of COVID, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. After the verdict came out, Denver's Department of Public Safety issued a statement. It says that they recognize some mistakes were made in their response And since the protests in 2020, they've eliminated the use of certain crowd control weapons and have improved officer training. The city didn't say if it was taking any specific steps because of this trial in particular, but the judge could still order the department to make some changes through a process called injunctive relief. Ah, which is something I know you'll follow. Matt, this was the first BLM protest case to make it to trial in Colorado. Should we expect to see others? And, you know, does this set some kind of precedent? We could absolutely see more. There's another class action suit being brought against the city around how it enforced its curfew, which it had during several nights of the protests. And several individual protesters who were injured have filed suit separately, too. I spoke with Jason Williamson. He's executive director of NYU's Center on Race, Inequality and the Law. He says this victory for protesters won't necessarily set legal precedent in other states, but it's still significant. And I would imagine that litigators around the country uh, would use a victory in this case as fodder, for sure. If Denver decides to appeal, it could make its way to higher federal courts and even the Supreme Court eventually. But it's way too soon to say if that will happen. Matt, thanks for this reporting. Thank you. CPR's Matt Bloom on Friday's $14 million combined verdict in favor of protesters in Denver. Colorado's driver licenses, yes, they're called driver licenses, not drivers, they have a new look. The craggy outline of a mountain against a sunset-filled sky, and in the foreground, a forest and hills. The image is based on a photo of Mount Sneffels on the western slope, and the photographer is Matt Nunez of Lone Tree. The public chose his picture as part of a contest. Hi, Matt. Congratulations. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Your picture of Mount Sneffels was one of almost 300 images in contention. And this is cool. It wasn't the only finalist to come from you. (laughs) That's right. Um, In late 2020... The governor announced the iconic Colorado contest to solicit artwork from across the state for the design of the new driver's license, driver license, I guess. <laughs> yes, and, that's right. Uh, I submitted three images. That was the maximum allowed and didn't think too much of it. And then several months later, I'd say in January or so of 2021, got a phone call from the Department of Revenue saying that all three of my images were selected as the sole finalists for the front side of the driver license. Now, this is not... Fixed. In other words, you work for the state of Colorado uh, by coincidence. Uh, This was not fixed. (laughs) This is is because you are good at what you do in your spare time. Well, thank you, Ryan. And I I would certainly hope it's not fixed, uh, considering I got the job with the state after uh, all of this had occurred. Um, I was living in Glenwood Springs on the West Slope at the time and um, was just delighted to have three of my photos, all from the West Slope, chosen for the front. 
What were the other photos of, just out of curiosity? Uh, so, of course, the winning image was of Mount Snuffles, and the two other ones were one from the Maroon Bells outside of Aspen mm. uh, during the winter, and then the other one was from Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Was the idea that it was going to be a natural scene, in other words, you didn't go and photograph the cash register building or something? <laughs> Now, this is uh, my specialty within photography is landscapes, and that is something that was really born out of my passion for Colorado and exploring our state and carrying my camera with me wherever, uh, wherever I went on road trips or work trips and trying to see as many beautiful and, of course, iconic spots as possible. You were born in Colorado, but you come from a military family that moved around a lot. I, I'm curious what drew you back here, and maybe that would tell us something about your photography. Sure. Well, I have uh, long family roots within Colorado, um, depending on how you count them. I'm either fourth or fifth generation okay. um, Coloradan and was born in Colorado Springs to a military family. My father served in the Air Force for 23 years as a graduate of the Air Force Academy. And as such, I moved around quite a bit. Throughout my life, my family told me that we were going to end up in Colorado at some mm. point. And I think coming from a military background, that sort of Lack of uh, roots in one place throughout my childhood really drew me back here. So as soon as I graduated college in 2016, I made my way back here, and I, I don't really plan on going anywhere anytime mm. soon. And do you think that that is a, in part because of natural beauty as well as family? Absolutely. I believe that landscapes are what root almost everybody in Colorado to live here. They're what brought the pioneers here back in the 1800s. It's, of course, what the indigenous populations before us um, attached so closely to spiritually. Yeah, speaking of rootedness. <laughs> Absolutely. And today it's something which uh, we all enjoy, both for recreation benefits, spiritual benefits, health benefits, you name it. Uh, photography is not your day job. You work for the Colorado Office of Economic Development in the Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. Correct. Uh, so you took this photo of Mount Sneffels in 2017. Correct. And you were wandering, I guess, the back roads of Ridgeway at that point. How does that place make you feel? Well, I think anybody who's driven south on Highway 550 from Montrose down to Ridgeway feels much the same when they see Mount Sneffels for the first time on that road and how it uh, looms on the horizon at first and then grows into something quite stunning once you're uh, actually around Ridgeway. And this was one of my first trips down there when I took this photo. Oh. And so it was fresh for you. I wonder if that fresh gaze helps, you know. I, I'm certain it did. And I was only passing through the area, but I spent as much time as I could afford just kind of exploring the back roads. Um, you know, people ask me where exactly I took that photo and I couldn't tell you. I was just kind of turning off on dirt roads wherever I found them until I eventually found my way back to the highway. It was a gorgeous fall day that first uh Weekend or two in October, I think, is the best time of year in Colorado. And all the conditions were just right for me to take an image that I'm quite proud of. How does your family feel about this? I just want to say, by the way, that your grandfather, Joe Nunez, came to Colorado as a child, eventually represented Douglas County in the legislature. Your grandmother also politically minded. You lost both of them, I think, in 2020. Correct. Which is the same year you found out your images had become finalists for this mm -hmm. honor. What does your living family think about the, 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 frankly, the three finalists, Matt. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, my family um, have always been my biggest supporters in my photography. All of my family has an artistic streak. My my dad and my sister were pretty musically inclined. My mom is uh, much more of the visual arts and literature bent. And I definitely got my creative streak from them. And they have supported me so much throughout this process, always uh, looking to uh, embarrass me on social media or, uh, or, or brag about <laughs> you, me. I was going to say brag yeah. about you. I bet is <laughs> yeah, what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> At the unveiling ceremony in February, you were able to renew your license, which meant getting the new one at Christ. Um, How does it feel to have it in your wallet? And what is it like using it? Well, it's funny because we're still at an early stage where I imagine not very many Coloradans have the new design yet. So, um, so far, I've been a little nervous if I go to a bar or a liquor store and I'm worried that they might think it's uh, not authentic (laughs) (laughs) since since it's not uh, all that well circulated yet. But, you know, it's exciting. Um, It's kind of a little uh, token or a little trophy, which I get to carry around. And, uh, of course, I'm not telling everybody I run into or flash it to that. uh, that, Don't you know who I am? (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's uh, not exactly what I'm doing. But um, I do feel uh, a little bit of pride when I pull that out just because of what that image means to me. I mean, it's so much more colorful than the past licenses. It really is, I don't know, I guess the most functional piece of art that we may encounter each day. It's funny. Um, so many photographers try to showcase their art on social media or through galleries or through fine art prints. And um, you don't think about some of these practical uses. So mm. it's kind of funny to think that uh, a driver's license of all things is what my photograph ended up on. And of course, I'm seeking those other avenues to showcase my work. But um, this is a pretty peculiar one that I'm lucky to lay claim to. Before we go, is there a part of the state you haven't been to that you'd like to photograph? You know, two areas of the state I have not yet explored but would really love to are uh, northeast Colorado around the Pawnee Buttes and uh, the plains in that region. And then additionally, um, the Yampa Valley. I've never been up around Steamboat or Craig or Hayden. Folks in those regions might see Matt someday soon. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Photographer Matt Nunez took the image on the front of Colorado's new driver licenses. I have tweeted the original photo at CPR Warner. Still to come, Back from Broken is back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Well, pack my canvas tote and fill my coffee mug. It's me, Paula Poundstone, from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And thanks to Colorado Public Radio, I'll be at the Paramount Theater in Denver on April 29th. Tickets are on sale now at ParamountDenver.com. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In the words of my colleague Vic Vela, when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, we can find hope. And that is at the heart of his podcast, Back from Broken. It's about people who've emerged from the hardships of addiction, mental illness, or physical injury. The third season debuted this month, and Vic is with us for a preview. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me, man. After three years now, what resonates with you about the stories you share? You know, I just continue to be blown away by the response. You know, in the 22 plus years that I've been in journalism, this is absolutely the most uh, the most emotional response to anything I've ever been a part of. Uh, you know, the, the emails from, from moms and dads who tell me that by listening to Back From Broken, it, it helps them better understand what their son or daughter is going through in terms of their addiction or mental health issues. 
Um, you know, sometimes I'll get an email saying, you know, I just listened to back from broken and now I'm going to my first recovery meeting. <gasps> I mean, I, I just can't think of a better or more incredible, uh, you know, compliment. You describe season three as containing some of the most powerful stories you've ever told, uh, including Lynn Chen's. So yeah. she struggled with an eating disorder. And in this excerpt, she describes a binge. What it would look like would be me being in the house, starting off the day, feeling like, okay, it's been at least three or four days since I've binged. I think I got this now. I think this is the week that we're going to go without one binge. I think we're doing really, really well. I didn't allow myself to keep foods that I binged on in the house, so everything was pretty empty. And my husband often had his own food that he would always ask, is it okay if I have this? And I'd always be like, yeah, sure. If you want to have your hummus and your crackers, <laughs> it's totally fine. If you want to have your Kashi Golene cereal, great. These are healthy things, right? They're marketed as healthy. So this is fine. I want to be the type of person who can live in a house with Kashi Golene cereal and hummus and not feel like I'm in trouble right? This is what I had said to myself. Inevitably, what would happen? I'd open the fridge, I'd see the kashi and the milk, and I'd say, I'm going to be a normal person today and have just one bowl of cereal. I'd sit, eat it, try not to have any distractions as they tell you not to, you know, chew my food thoroughly, mm -hmm. feel like I got this under control. And then I'd be done with the bowl. I'd wash the bowl. I'd go do something else. And then 20 minutes later, I'd want another bowl. And I thought, you know what? I, that's fine, because I see that in movies all the time. People do that. <laughs> People go back and they have their second bowl of cereal. It's totally normal. So I'd go and I'd have my second bowl do the same thing. And then the hunger would come back one more time. Mm. And I think to myself, Okay, I can have another bowl of cereal, but if I have another bowl of cereal, now the cereal is like almost empty, and that means I'm going to have to buy another package for my husband. Ugh. Well, I might as well just do that, and I'll just buy him another package. No big deal, right? Yeah, no big deal. So by this time, I'm no longer pouring it into a bowl and adding milk. I'm just hoovering it straight from the box into my mouth, and that's when it hits me you are going to binge. And if you're going to binge and you're going to go to the grocery store and buy other things, well then, while you're at the grocery store, we might as well see what else is there. Maybe our old friend Entenmann's is there. Mm. Let's see. Then I would cancel the rest of my day because I was like, I'm definitely going to be sick later on. So whatever dinner plans I have later on, I am going to cancel now because so I can just be splayed out on the couch. Yeah, you're off to the races. I'm yeah. off to the races. I'd go to that grocery store. I'd buy the Kashi. I'd buy whatever else I wanted. While I was out on the street, I'd, why not? Let's like go get some pizza and ice cream, eat it on the street as I was walking back, come home, eat everything I had bought, plus finish off the kashi to the point where my husband wouldn't, couldn't tell anymore. <laughs> At this point, I would definitely start to feel sick. It, would, it wouldn't even be like noon or 1 p.m. and I'd already be feeling very sick. But by 2 p.m., I'd start to feel like an opening again. 
much like one does on Thanksgiving after you've gorged yourself. And then two hours later, you're like, ooh, here's some room for pumpkin pie. Yeah. So then I would go eat by myself at a restaurant and I would take so much pride in like, wow, I'm like here ordering French fries, just a plate of French fries and eating them like a civilized person. When really what I want to be doing is like eating the entire plate plus, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich plus some pancakes. But I'm being very civilized by ordering these French fries and only eating half of them. Lin Chen, whose story is chronicled in season three of Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery. Uh, Vic Vela, eating disorders aren't something I think you'd covered before. I know that listeners encouraged this exploration. Chen points out that her anxiety around food didn't go away just because she lost weight or looked a certain way, right? Yeah, I learned a lot about eating disorders by talking to Lynn. You know, she would always get these comments from people, especially in her own family, like, you know, how she looked, like if she gained uh, gained a few pounds in college and come home, they'd say, wow, you've gained weight. And, and, you know, and then, of course, becoming an actress, she would see all these tabloid headlines, right, of like actresses who are quote unquote too skinny or who have gained a few pounds and you know that sinks in and and for for Lynn that was just devastating to hear and the thing that really stood out to me Ryan is someone who is you know I'm in recovery from cocaine addiction you wouldn't think that there's anything similar between binge eating and being a cocaine addict but when she would talk about uh you know the shame and guilt and, and the hiding that went into her binges, it was very similar to my own mm. uh, binging with cocaine. And I think uh, it, it really, really reminded me of what this show is all about, which is empathy, right? And her story helped me better understand my story, even though we had very uh, different things we were addicted to. Why don't we listen to some of your conversation with Thierry Caldwell? He's a former gang member whose childhood was shaped by a tough family life, drugs, alcohol, and violence. And as an adult, he ended up in prison after shooting a man. And solitary confinement really changed him. I just kind of got to a dark place, man. Like I just, after all the powerlessness and all the hopelessness, and I got sent to the hole for like six months for an incident uh, with another inmate for fighting. And then I just, um, you know, I just had a, I had a breakdown in the hole and I was sitting there by myself. I swear the devil was sitting in that actual cell with me. And he just said, he was just leaned up against the wall and he said, see, I told you. I knew you would always be here. You can't even, you can't even, not only can you not make it in society, you're in prison and you can't even make it in prison. You're in the hole. He just told me I was nothing and and that I belonged here and that this would be the rest of my life. This would be my story. I was nothing. I was a has-been father. I was an addict. I was a junkie. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was... Every I was just a scum of the earth, and that's why your father never bothered to know you. Wow. I mean, I just, I can't imagine you're alone and your only conversation is with the devil, and he's telling you how worthless you are. How did you get yourself out of that? Um, 
it kind of it kind of came down to um, a situation where I just kind of told myself this is either gonna make me or break me. And um, once I got out of that rat infested sewage infested um, cage, I just started dedicating myself to um, self development, and I started writing. And then I um, I began to study my history. I began to study Black history, and then I actually got involved in uh, treatment as well. And that actually, treatment was probably one of the most important catalysts that kind of helped my growth. And I just began to seek out things to better myself. So for as much evil and destruction as I sought out, I just kind of flipped it in a way. Asked God to remove anything out of my life that did not coincide with the path that he wanted me to take. And you also, um, Tierre, you're now learning coping mechanisms for things like anger and violence. Uh, can you share some of those things that you learned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, number one, I had a lot of trauma and I learned that I knew nothing about emotional intelligence. Nothing. I was taught to deal with my problems in a violent way because that's the only thing individuals from my circle or my world, that's what they respected. I thought that that was the norm. But then I learned alternatives to violence. I learned how to de-escalate situations. Like I learned how to be assertive versus aggressive. I got to the core of what made me act how I acted. And it really made me evaluate like my childhood trauma. And the thing I love the most about this treatment is I could not blame one thing on anybody else. I think that was the one thing that saved my life because they made me delve deep into my addiction, into my gang life, into my family story, into my relationships. And they held me accountable for every single thing I did. And I could not blame one thing on anybody else. I had to turn it back to myself. And I never done that before. I never had to be accountable for my wrongdoing. And then I never had to peel back and get to the core of why I did what I did. I never got to experience or even talk about my trauma. I didn't even know what trauma was. I thought it was just normal things that we people just go through. T.R. Caldwell sharing his recovery from gangs, drugs, violence with Vic Vela in Back From Broken. Vic, he mentioned the devil and God while he Mm -hmm. was in solitary. You and I have talked before about how faith can be a part of recovery. I'm curious, uh, do you have faith? And if so, has the podcast strengthened it? Well, I don't have much faith in my March Madness bracket at the moment, (laughs) but uh, we're not even going to go there. Um, that's an excellent question. Faith, Ryan, is a part of everything I do. Uh, faith gets me through periods where I am uh, struggling. You know, there's the old quote, uh, faith sees best 
in darkness. And, uh, and right now, obviously, we're in a dark time in this in the world, you know, there's a war going on. There's the pandemic, which we, you know, we has been going on forever, and there's just a lot of despair. And and you know, my belief in a higher power, uh, and and a spiritual plane that has helped me stay sober every day for the last uh, seven plus years uh, still remains. And really, this show has strengthened it. Hearing the other stories from people from all walks of life. You know, what do we have in common? I, I don't have much in common with Lynn Chen, maybe not much in common with Hunter Biden in terms of how we grew up and our support system and, and, the, and the ways that we went about our lives. But we sure have a lot in common when it comes to recovery and, and having a spiritual foundation under our feet uh, to help us through those times. You know, I get asked a lot, do you believe in God? And, uh, you know, to answer the question, yes, but it's kind of uh, irrelevant because, you know, my life changed from the moment I started to believe in a power greater than myself. And, you know, is there evidence of God? You know, I don't know, but there's evidence that shows that once I started to believe in a power greater than myself, my life got immeasurably better. Just to say that uh, Hunter Biden was a guest on the program, on the podcast. Vic, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Vic Vela, creator and host of Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery. Season three is out now. Follow Back From Broken at NPR One, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts, frankly, and online at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Stina Sieg. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.